We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash hack it out. Just go to Indeed.com slash hack it out right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash hack it out. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right, welcome back to the Hack It Out Golf Podcast. Myself, Lou Stagner, and we have a guest presenter, which we'll introduce to you in a second this evening. In uh, uh, We've got Greg Chalmers, a PGA Tour player and ex-European Tour player, who's going to join us for a few episodes, so it should be a lot of fun. And we've also got a special guest tonight in Tony Covey. Covey? Covey? We'll ask him. He's throwing spanners in how to pronounce his name. Like I said, depends who you yeah, ask. Covey is, Covey is what most people Tony use Covey from My Golf Spy. If you don't know who he is, you will after today's episode. Should be a fun one. So before we bring Tony in, let's start with Greg. Greg, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Hack It Out Golf podcast crew you're going to be guest presenting with us for a few episodes um pga tour player ex european tour player australian born in sydney is that correct that's correct mate and living in the u.s now is that also correct is that what yes, you're Dal- yes mate dallas texas working on my accent as we speak Fantastic. And, uh, really enjoying it and thank you for joining us for a few episodes we can't wait for your input as um lou has already said hello lou as always welcome mr crossfield good to see you again Lou is already excited to get Greg involved. He's already said that he didn't see um, PGA Tour players as human, but we'll come to that as we go on. <laughs> that was a fun discussion. <laughs> fun start to the conversation, but we'll get to that. So let's bring in Tony. Tony Covey. Have I said that right from my goals? Why? How are you yeah, doing? It's close yeah. enough. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing fantastic. Right. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure to speak to Tony from my goal Spy. For those of you who don't know who my goal Spy are, maybe Tony, if you could introduce yourself as in what do you do with my goal Spy? Um, tell us what what actually is your role. Yeah, I do a little bit of everything. So, you know, kind of writer turned uh, the guy who developed our test protocols and in the early years did all the testing, uh, turned data analyst and to <laughs> and a lot of other stuff too. Uh, I was setting up a new user account for a new hire today. <laughs> okay, so, <see. laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, you name it, I've, I've done it at one so point. What did probably. you do before my golf spy out of interest? Like, what did you train uh, as? What What's your background? Um, I don't actually know. Yeah, so I uh, my degree is in English, yeah. so I suppose that loosely translates. But before my golf spy, I worked in IT. Okay. So I was a system administrator for a number of years and then led a small group of system administrators for a while. And then, you know, here yeah. we are. And you've know. seen my golf spy 
grow crazy. I mean, you've been for there from pretty much the start, I'm guessing, have you? I was employee number two. Yeah. Wow. So Adam started it. So I guess really kind of the first hire. Um, so I've been there. Yeah. I mean, almost from the beginning. So yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely kind of grown to you know, when we were really flying by the seat of our pants, waking up in the morning, having a call going, all right, what are we going to write about today? What yeah, are we going to yeah. do today to, you know, just trying to, to at times contain the beast to a degree and, and keep up. So yeah, wildly different. I mean, I remember using my goal spy when I had a website, when the, one of the tricks when you had a website selling equipment is understanding what the next product was going to be called back in the day, because you oh, could get yeah. your page up there early for SEO rankings. If you're the first person to say tightness TS or whatever, you rank pretty good. And you guys used to launch pictures of product back in the day, <laughs> way before it was used to get the product oh, which i'm sure yeah. used to get you in a lot of trouble <laughs> this was when the i mean uh, if people think the, the internet is the wild west now it used to be even more back in those days because the, the manufacturers no one really knew what was coming or what was happening and just kind of let stuff happen and then they would sit back and think hang on they're all posting about our product that we haven't even launched yet this isn't so good i remember you from those or i remember my goals oh yeah yeah that was that was i mean very early on right <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you said like spy picks we gotta yeah, get the next hot right. spy pick yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and uh typically the 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 hot spy pick was was followed almost immediately by the very hot season assist letter <laughs> and demands to take down so what, um, can yeah. I ask? Can I ask? Why do you think they're so worried about that? Given that they do it in the they do it in the car industry all the time, don't they? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think so much of it is. I mean, a lot of it is right. There's all this stuff that goes on in conference rooms where there's a lot of planning. Like we're going to do this at launch, and we're going to blow it up, and it's it's going to be like the the unveiling of a huge secret. And then if you know somebody like me kind of lets the air out of the balloon a little early, it's it's disruptive and sort of you know. The big launch kind of craps all over the effort. And then the other thing too, is there is for the most part, I will say that across the industry, there is effort to be fair, right? They want yeah. everybody to have the same opportunity. So they don't want, they don't want my golf spy telling a story two weeks before golf digest is, is going to kind of coordinate with the, with the big launch and you know, so on and so well, forth. So, the other thing as well with those pre-launches is often there would be a lot of misinformation. And if you imagine you're spending quite a lot of dollars trying to release a product that you've worked on and people are just guessing and putting out information, you then have to kind of launch and retell a story that's already become a story. And secondhand stories are never that good. So from when seeing both sides of the curtains personally, I, I really respect launch dates because you meet the people who actually make these launches happen and the passion they put in. And I just, there's a part of me that just thinks like back in the day, I didn't know. And it was more about just trying to get my website. And it was like, we didn't really know it was so bad as such. But when you see behind the curtain, you kind of think, well, these people's jobs are kind of all built around this process. There needs to be a bit of respect on both sides. So it kind of makes a lot of sense why they do try to be fair and control their product. At the end of the day, it's their product, isn't it? Like we're just well, and piggybacking that's... on the back of it, aren't we? 
that's that's certainly right you want to you want to control i mean i think a lot of golf companies still want to control information but but certainly you yeah. you want to control the disinformation yeah so that's one piece of it and the other thing too if you go back a, a lot of these spy pits i mean these are not professional quality photos no, I mean, they, <laughs> they look like absolute garbage yeah. and that's like you put in years to develop a product and and really give it the shelf appeal that somebody's going to see and want to buy and the first picture just makes it look like dog crap like that's that's yeah. not good we feel good for Anybody. We filmed with Amiga once, the watch company, and I'll never forget. I can't remember what time. Someone will correct me in the comments or online, but every watch we filmed had to be set to a certain time. <laughs> it was like the, it was three o'clock or one o'clock because it was like, like if you see it, a picture of an Amiga watch, it'll have that time on it. I can't remember the reasons, but he gave it. But the guy who was following us around was so nervous because obviously we shoot quite gorilla with our cameras. They're just kind of shooting everywhere where if you work with production, they'll like tell you where the shot is and what's in shot, what's not. Well, we're more just walking around shooting. This guy was so nervous. You can't shoot that. You can't shoot that. I've got to change the time on that one. Uh, that was like the, the the ultimate extreme of controlling, obviously a very premium brand and golf clubs at the end of the day are premium brands. They want to control the premiumness of it and like tony and his mates taking some shoddy picture on, on a phone for you know on a tour range, we, we take good lit. pictures you, know, you didn't back in those days though they were proper like well it was like they uh, very often they weren't ours right it was yeah. like you said some guy some guy with a phone and the phones weren't nearly as good <laughs> as they are now but yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I had me laughing when you're talking about had the time having to be set just right. Because I mean, look at look at manufacturers' photos. Pick any one, right? You ever seen a golf ball where the photo isn't the number one ball? True, I mean, <laughs> so, oh, very true. So Tony, you've been doing a lot of cool stuff this year, um, and there's something that I want to want to get into a little bit. At least, kind of hear the behind the scenes, the the ball test you did this year. So a lot of people, I'm sure are aware of it. They saw it, but there's going to be some listeners that aren't aware of what you did. And I thought it was amazing and pretty impressive. Give us kind of the backstory. And uh, I'd love to ask a few more follow-up questions on it. Yeah. I mean, the, the backstory, right. Came from many years ago. Not well, it feels like many years ago, three or four years ago. Now, you know, Adam, the owner of my golf spy came to me and said, you know, how do we test golf balls? Because, you know, we're an equipment site and we test drivers and irons and wedges. And, and it just seems odd to have this glaring hole. And I'm like, well, this is a case where humans probably aren't the best way to test. We need to find a robot, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, we were, we were able to track down a robot, get some time on it. And so here we are, you know, this year wrapped up our second generation of golf ball tests which is, yeah, I mean, and it is in terms of an effort, I would say probably the, the, you know, I, I say it just because it's, it's nonstop and it's very condensed, but our driver test, you know, that takes place over the span of two months. So we, we typically put a lot of time into everything we do, but, but even with a robot test, we were out there for, you know, 60 hours, basically. So just shy of 60 hours, 12 hours a day, almost five days, just watching, watching a robot smack golf balls. What was it like to, uh, to work with the robot? Um, and how, 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 what's that? It's boring. (laughs) It's really, I mean, it is, it is, it's, it's like punishment almost. You're like, all right, hit another one. Tony, how much does it cost to rent a robot for 60 hours? 
Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. We, <laughs> we got a bill. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a, yeah. I won't give you a number, but it's, it's, not, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Is it, it's the operator as well is the problem. Is Yes. It? You're also renting it's it. You're also renting an engineer. And yes. so we do this, we do this out at Scottsdale mm-hmm. national owned by Bob Parsons, who also owns PXG and yeah, um, oh. it's not a free ride. Do you, do you try and pick, do you try and pick different weather or you just, what, what do you try and do on that front? So, I mean, this is a case where, you know, if I, if I had my own robot, I would be, you know, you have more freedom, but basically you, you have to kind of find a week that works. And so, you know, if, if I could, if I could stretch it out for three weeks, right, I'd do it a little bit differently, but in a condensed window, like you, you work with what you're given and, and hopefully, you know, you don't have to sort through too much noise as you go. Because you've watched, I'm sure you've watched the main manufacturers of golf balls test their golf balls. There's robot testing, there's human testing, and there's obviously tunnel testing. Greg asking there about the, the the weather. I mean, I've seen testing which is done in a very controlled indoor, massive, long tunnel with cameras every 12 yards kind of um, test. So, you know, when it comes to tests, I th- I always think it's quite interesting in golf that people... And it's something that obviously my golf spy strive to, which is something that I'm often interested in what they do. And I, I admire what they do on that side is that like, you, you know, cause I test clubs and people talk about why don't you get a robot to do it? And why don't you like robots? I remember going to ping and like robots are great and they only, but they only do so much. So for instance, if you put different shafts in a robot, it will still just deliver X, Y, or Z cause it doesn't react to it obviously a golf ball is different because a human won't react to it so much but you know it's a bit more of a dry test but even just working out the best way to test something is still i mean it's still up to debate to a certain extent because there's so much i mean a robot test is great but a robot test is not human uh, and it's not playing in an environment that a golfer will play and it's hitting in a controlled environment isn't it so i mean how do you come up with your test protocols something you're very interested in i'm sure trying to improve them each time yeah and and we've we've already talked with some you know amongst ourselves and we're constantly going back with manufacturers as well like all right how do we how do we how do we improve this and and there's always you know there's a reality that if if i'm titleist and i'm testing say i want to know how my new pro v1 compares to my old one right i can do that in a very narrow window and i'm i'm typically comparing two things maybe three or four things whereas our readers want us you know if if it was up to our readers we we'd be testing 150 different models like yeah. test everything yeah. <laughs> and so you know, we're like already like, all right, we had to condense this down to, I think we did 35, 36 models and some, some, we had some weird stuff in there. Like we had arranged balls and we had refurbished golf balls, but yeah. you know, we're over 30 actual things that you would consider going into a store and buying. And so just, just the sheer number of products we need to test causes us to do some things differently. Um, so that's always a consideration. We're looking at things like, okay, do we test, should we set up the robot to try and hit what would be considered optimal numbers and and that's what we we went for this time around and we got pretty close with mid and and high swing speed uh, low swing speeds our our high swing speeds got spinny so that's something we'll look at next time so that's one consideration do we do that or do we do we kind of just talk to fitters and manufacturers go hey what what are guys within this swing range what never mind optimal because we know not everybody in fact most golfers don't get to optimal what are we actually getting for, for actual conditions? So that's the kind of thing we look at. And it is, it's always like, can we get a large enough sample size? How do we get a large enough sample size? How many products do we test? What's the right way to test in the conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, you know, every test is, is like that. And things like, 
you know, for example, our driver test, that's as far as Tesco, a driver test is super easy, right? Because all of us, for the most part, every now and then we might hit it off the desk, the, the deck, but mostly it's tee it up and whack it. And that's that, right? Where irons, you have other things you need to look at, wedges, other things you need to look at. So, you know, for every test, it's what's worked in the past. And then, okay, how can we tweak it and tune it next time so we get a little bit better? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can I ask one question with the test? Sorry, I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, but why do you use total distance on some of the posts I see? Why do you use total? I, I don't. Uh, What's the reasoning behind so, that? So I mean, that's yeah, that's a number a lot of golfers look at, and with a with a golf ball, that's that's probably the number that matters. Um, but we we publish carry, and yeah, you know, you can you can argue over which one's more important. And um, you know, for an iron, I tend to like carry distance a little bit better, um, just in general. But again, you sort of try, and it, there's a piece of it's like try and keep everything consistent in what you do, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, driver, I, I tend to to like total distance a little bit better because that that's ultimately what golfers look at, right? It's not just yeah. how far I carried it, but, but I, where did it end up? But and, I presume that's total distance from the launch monitor, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And so you do get, you know, at some point, right? Once that ball hits the ground, the algorithms kick in. That's a reality. Uh, and before it hits the ground, good, depending but, on what launch monitor you're using. Obviously, well, both yeah. of the ones that you'd be using before it as well. But that's that's it. Yeah. I just I didn't know if there was something you knew that I didn't, which was making us why I that was a personal question. That was one of your questions. No, no, and even so, I, I mean it's a great example, right? So one thing I would love to do more with carry distance on iron tests, but you know, we're we're on Foresight, we're starting to look at the FSX Pro package, gives you a little different metrics. But if you know you're familiar with Foresight, yeah. the number it gives you for offline is where it finished. So you, you always want to be able to carry that cor- um, correlate that offline number with a distance number. And so if you only have total offline, then you need to correlate it to total distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that. I, I was curious as to uh, what you see, Tony, in the in the future. What you see the best value for amateurs going forward. You know, if you're just Joe Blow at your golf club, what part of the equipment do you think has the most room and wiggle room for them to gain? Is it the shaft oh. or the head? Like, because the head did, speeds obviously are set in. So how can they get max? I have a theory, but I'm wondering what you think of where can they get max value out of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's opportunities are in terms of improvement through technology everybody's working in a very narrow space right now That's right? Okay. You, the usga doesn't want you i mean they're talking about making the golf ball go not as far the drivers can't get much longer I can mean, they make it more stable bit. time do you think or anything like well that i mean that's that's sort of right how you get longer is through you know if if i can increase the the sweet spot or the the area where i get more forgiveness to a wider portion of the face then my average distance is going to sneak up a little bit even if my sweet spot different distance isn't any bigger or longer than it used to be so the opportunity there i mean i think you know i think there's opportunity with the golf ball but that's you know i live my life in the golf ball world these days so i think there's opportunity there but ultimately i'm like Man, if you if you want to hit it farther, take a lesson or pick up a swing speed trainer. If you want to get more consistent, definitely take a lesson. Right. I mean, I think those are probably where the greatest opportunities for for individual improvement lie. But it's it's not as sexy and it's certainly not as much fun for me. Do you guys can I ask, do you guys get like I know, say with Titleist, it's on a two year rolling thing with the way they release their drivers and the irons piggybacking each other. Do you guys get sneak peeks and you have some idea of what's about to come out and hit the market? Uh, like how much behind the scenes do you have access to? Uh, it, it depends on the manufacturer. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, they, they, they like to keep us. The big thing they, that everybody tries to do 
is, is not let us see it before their sales guys see it. Um, that's when we get a lot, but I mean, yeah, I, and again, stuff leaks. So I have hints of what coming. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen the new tailor-made driver yet, but I've got some details on it. You know, I have some insight of, into what Titleist is working on for six months from now. So it's, you know, it, it, it differs by, I by just, company. I, I just want to find out personally, because they always used to bother me that the superstars that get access to this stuff before me. And I'm like, I just want to know if Tony's getting it. And then it's, it no, feels fair I mean, that you're they, not getting it. So I'm good. Nobody, nobody's, nobody's, nobody's sending me a prototype six months early and going, hey, can you give us your feedback on this and let us know what we need to tweak? You know, I, don't, I don't have Jordan Spieth level access. I got a question on the robot. I got to know this. How fast can the robot swing? Because me, I'm a child. I would be out there and I would look at that engineer and I'd say, listen, I want to crank this thing up. up to like 170. I want 170, but I want to smash a golf ball and break it into pieces. How fast can it swing? Yeah, you know, I, I forgot what they told us, but it was, it was considerably faster than we had it swinging. And they were, you know, they mentioned they'd gotten ball speeds over 200 miles an okay. hour. All right, so it's um, not crazy. So they don't have one sixty swing speed in the bag. If if yeah, I I couldn't tell you for sure. And the, and the other thing to keep in mind, right? The we've only dealt with the robot at PXG, and that range is it's it's not practically limited. Like it can it can contain Wyndham Clark without too much of an issue. <laughs> but um, but you know if you're if you're cranking up a robot and just trying to see how far you can mash yeah. it, then you're starting to put you know, buildings and other structures into play. And maybe that's not such a great, they idea. need to bring in one of those yeah, yeah. temporary nets like they did for Bryson. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, interesting question from Greg there about where he thinks things are going for amateurs. I mean, I would say, Tony, I'd be interested in your opinion. I personally see the biggest developments for amateurs. And again, this is harder to sell is in education. So where you mentioned lessons, I agree with that, obviously, as a coach, you know, definitely lessons. I see bigger gains in lessons than I do in any equipment. I, I, I can't I can't remember any piece of equipment ever beating my piece of equipment being my knowledge of how to help them hit the ball better. But what I mean by education, apart from that, which I think most people would agree on, is actually I still see people with ridiculous clubs in their bags, egotistic, ridiculous clubs, not working on 200 yard lengths because, you know, they want five wedges in their bag. As Phil Mickelson, who sells wedges, once said, like, use 10 wedges or whatever. Um, I, I, I see there the bigger improvements there. The problem is, is I don't see bigger improvements there for people who are already maxing that out. But there are plenty who don't, which I'm sure you see from your readers and your 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 audience. People make some interesting choices in their equipment rather than thinking MOI and how does this club go faster? How can we make them smarter? Which I'm pretty sure is one of your kind of, you know, one of your mission statements, really, isn't it? Well, yeah. And it's, I mean, a lot of what we do and what you try to do, you're, you're combating mythology yeah. and sort of belief structures that are that are based on things that you know, probably aren't true. And so we know we have a, we have a sizable, certainly bigger than the market as a whole average of our, of our readers who, who are playing blades. Yeah. And if I suggest, <laughs> if I come out and say that's, wow. that's probably, yeah, right. Exactly. Wow. I got a PGA pro laughing here, but if I, if I come out and say, Hey, you know, as a, as a five or a 10, or certainly as a 15 handicap, you probably shouldn't be playing blades. I get a lot of pushback because, you know, some people there, there's that mindset, right. That, a blade teaches me to hit it in the center of the face more often. I'm like, well, you know, as a, as a 15 handicap, how's that working out for yeah. me? Uh, I need to work the ball <laughs> <And> more. So, <laughs> well, you shot yeah, I need to work the ball. I just, 
so it's it's you know there there's a lot of that but yeah and i think you know huge opportunity in fitting but especially with the driver like i think there's an opportunity for some golfers to pick up 20 30 yards something like that but you get it once right you go from being really poorly fit into to getting reasonably dialed in and from there on out you're not going to see that gain ever again probably unless you know something changes in your or you're you're somehow got into a position where you're really poorly fit again yeah 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 um so it's you know it's yeah, there's a lot of myth that you're battling with, isn't there? Basically, sorry, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is kind of a question for Greg and, and Tony. Feel free to, to jump in, but I'm, I'm one, Greg. I want to know if you played Blades, and two, I'm I'm cool. really curious to hear like how you approached equipment. And I, I use my golf spy to help me out for my level. And I don't know if the question is, do you use my golf spy? I don't think that's really the question, but how like you were ranked as high as 52nd in the world um, back in 2012. So you could play the game. How did you approach equipment? And, you know, what, what's that like for a tour player? You you know, if did did you look at my golf spy? Um, no, no, not until recently, actually, until we, um, because, you know, frankly, Moments I, was getting, ago. I was getting it for free. So that was, that was part of it. And, uh, and honestly, it was, I will tell you before a uh, post being tied down to what I had to use contractually, um, some of the decisions come down to just the conditions, like you bounce on lob wedge and I love Vokey wedges and things like that. Some of them come down to, I have to use this, um, other part went, but when I was able to use any driver, that I could, which was about three years ago, I went and bought every driver on the market, every model, and went and put my shaft in it with my buddy who does, we do TPT shafts, which you'd know, Tony, right? So um, my coach uses is a rep for them, and I went and tried them all. Um, I think there's a real, you know, granted I'm lucky I could afford to, but there's a real thing for amateurs. If, you know, get that testing process right, get everything where you need it to be so you get max value. Uh, I was curious, Tony, if you think um, – there's anything in the that could make the game even easier for some of the amateurs, you know, because I, I just entered the teaching world, Mark, and uh, yep. myself here a little bit at a local club, and I'm curious as to your, both your, all your thoughts on if there's something they could do to make it get people pick up the game more easily. Yeah, yeah. It's such a hard game. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a case of yeah. I think very often golfers won't get out of their own way. So I mentioned the blades, right? And so everybody blade looks sexy a lot of people want to play them if you're not going to play a blade i'm going to play the next closest thing where there are there are game improvement irons that that not a lot of guys buy um those could probably help and i think conversely on the other side of that equation i think manufacturers could do more to make those those game improvements if not more appealing make them fit a broader range so you know i gotten better in the last couple of years, which has been good. But for a long time, I was a 15, 16 handicap who could swing a driver hundred plus 105 miles an hour, give or take at the time. And, and the game improvement irons were, were designed with the stock shafts were, were light and whippy. And so while I needed the game improvement benefits of the heads themselves, the way they were built just didn't work. And I think, I think kind of extending that idea to, to a broader range of players and not saying, well, if you're a game improvement player, you're a, you must be a kind of slow to moderate swing speed player who does X, Y, and Z, just kind of broadening what a category fits, I think on the design side could help. Um, other than that, like I said, it's just, you know, making drivers that much better, that much more forgiving. But I think, I think we're probably, 
well past the point of of sort of like this this huge breakthrough that's going to transform the right, game and right, make it right. easier but at the same time like i you know we know right Lou, lou's got all kinds of data that will tell you there's a there's a correlation between distance and and score and so you know anything like the usga starts talking about rolling anything back for amateurs so they're not hitting it as far i'm like well that that's effectively making the game harder when you when you do something goofy like ban anchor putters across the board or um long putters like that that's had a narrow impact but for some guys you just made the game harder and, and so, more unenjoyable you know like i said You've literally yeah, just, just made their weekend golf not fun, haven't you? Yeah, so it's a lot of it is just, you know, improve on what you're doing and, and then just get the hell out of your own way. Yeah, so, I don't think the answers are in equipment now, and I think Lou would agree. It's tee it forward is the main thing that will make people enjoy it more. Greg, for me, it's just get that ball forward. Uh, there was never enough forward tees for the beginners I used to teach when I was teaching full, full time in London. We used to take them to a local par free course that was connected to our club. Uh, without that, you were going to members only clubs trying to get a time where they weren't quaffing at you because you were taking a bit longer because they were new golfers. And you were teeing it halfway up the fairway, which they could right. tell they weren't really playing golf. Like, I'm not meant to be here. There's not even a blooming tee for me. Um, well, so there you go, though. Golfers golfers have to get out of their own way, too, right? The, there's an ego thing with the tee box, oh, for 100%. sure. So, like, I don't, I, I I don't know want to tee on, forward. And like, someone on Twitter started uh, manager expectations, I believe, Lou. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I, just, I just did that the other day. I did a punning clinic, and I said to the people, hey, it was a 10-footer. I said, look, you're a 6 out of 10. You're world-class. One yeah. of the best in the world. And they're like, you're kidding me. And I said, yeah. so if you make one of these out of five, be happy. <laughs> it's uh, it's that it's pretty hard. It's pretty tough sometimes. Yeah. Absolutely. To answer your question on what I think equipment, what I'd like to see to help more amateurs, I need more forgiveness on the hustle. That's what I need. Yes. That's the part of my game that needs the most work. You need like so. an airbag on the hosel, don't you? Need, so when yeah. it activates, the ball doesn't go as far. <laughs> I've, nice. I've talked to Ping a couple of times about a center shafted iron. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> it doesn't work. I taught a tennis pro once, and he said, because obviously tennis racket joins in the middle, doesn't he? And he used to say to me, why does the golf club join at the end? Why does it not join in the middle? I throw my energy down the racket, he said, and that goes to the middle of the racket where I want to hit the ball. Why on earth does it join at the heel? It makes no sense. And as a young coach, I thought, oh, I can't answer that. And I went off and thought about it and then could work it out. But could, do you know why they, Why you can't have a centre-shafted one? It's a Wouldn't funny question. Think of a tennis racket. It's clever, isn't it? A tennis racket joins in the middle, doesn't it? Why can't you do it on a golf club? I imagine no, just the, the motion of the swing is well basically so if you look at a shaft like when you gonna... hit the ball it toes yeah. down it bends down the energy yeah. travels straight so if you follow that from the grip it goes to generally the center of the club it doesn't go to the heel it doesn't go down the shaft on the curve it goes out in a straight line which throws it to where it would join if it was a tenor racket which isn't curving like a shaft's curving which i it's just really smart of a guy to say that I've, toe down heel up I, I still think it could work yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. just, just get that heel out of my grill yeah. Lou, eh? That's maybe, maybe not like you don't have to go full heel like you don't have to maybe not center <laughs> like shaft, just a little bit cleveland yeah, there you go the oh, Andy Shanker, Corey yeah exactly Corey Paven. i'll get you a set of those in. I want to go back to what Tony said about the number of readers that are playing blades. So uh, one of the things that I'm going to be to be working on, and I'm pretty sure I can share this, I'll probably um, just make sure. But um, in Arcos, we we know the club that the player is using. 
And so I'm going to look at on-course performance and I'm going to take, let's say, five handicaps. And I'm going to look at five handicaps and I'm going to bucket them by the type of club that they play. And then I'll look at their approach play. So five handicaps are all, let's just say they're roughly around the same skill level, same talent level, shooting roughly about the same scores. But I'm really curious to see if the five handicaps that play blades are poorer performers in approach play versus the five handicaps that are playing super game improvement irons to see what that looks like. And I'll do that for varying handicap levels because I've, I've always been of the opinion, and maybe this is just me as a poor ball striker, that why wouldn't you want something that's more forgiving? Uh, because even somebody like Greg, you, yes, he hits it on the button a lot, but he doesn't always hit it on the button. Um, and when you take an amateur player, uh, even a scratch player, they, and Mark will tell you this, and Tony will tell you this, with all the data that you have, they hit, hit it. They have a pretty big area on the face where they're hitting it. So I've always wondered why people don't move towards things that are going to help them out. Is it just the stigma of playing shovels? Yeah, I think part of it is, right, nobody, nobody wants to play a super game improvement iron. Um, I do. Or even a game improvement I do. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I mean, be great. <laughs> but you're starting to see kind of like the, the player's distance category has kind of been that has become game improvement for guys who don't want to play game improvement clubs. So there's, there's help there. Um, so I think, I think that's part of it is just like the ego. I don't want to play these. I don't like the way they look. Um, and again, part of the other thing too, is you can consider how many golfers are, are buying off the rack, just walking into a shop. And as I mentioned earlier, there are elements of those designs, which certainly in a stock build, don't necessarily work for, for a lot of players. And so, you know, I, I talked about the shaft, but there's a case of like, Hey, I would, I would love it if you could make a higher MOI iron, but maybe that didn't have all of that offset. Right. And, but there's, there's not necessarily enough demand to segment the market to that degree. So yeah, it's challenges, but I think, like I said, the big thing is guys just don't want to. And that's, that's, that's maybe the toughest obstacle to overcome. Sure. Yeah. But I would agree with that. The other part to that question, Lou, which is an interesting one. And one I've gone on a search re well over the last six months doing is maybe MOI can't really be found in the realms of what you're speaking. What do you mean? So I've gone on a bit of a search for MOI over the last six or eight months, and I've got stuff coming on it soon, which I'll talk about. But maybe MOI is a term that we all brandish around the idea of help, but maybe it actually can't be found in the realms of the two measured MOIs that you're talking about. So like from a, let's say, a Mizuno MP20 to a Ping G425, like let's go either ends of the spectrum almost, um there is an moi measured difference in them but does it play out when you hit a number of shots with it is a bigger question that no one seems to ask which um i don't want to tell you what i found because i want to release it on my video but maybe it maybe we take moi for granted because we hear the term a lot let, let me just say that does that make any sense it, or not? It it's does. like a cryptic answer. No, yeah, you're you're you're, you're being cryptic and, and yeah. speaking in codes. Greg, were you? <laughs> did you play blades? Do you do you play blades? So my my original set set I started with they're downstairs in the garage. They're called PGF Slammers, and they're a little tiny. They were they were big beginner sets. Then I went to a set of blades that I have downstairs 
that I think I butter with my toast every morning. They look <laughs> horrendous and you would never touch those again. And I quickly moved into, remember the old Titleist DCIs? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You know, those kind of things. Yeah. And then yeah. I've been Titleist all my life uh, pretty much. I did Nike for a little while, but um, somewhat a little bit of a regret that uh, their stuff didn't quite work out. <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. Um, anyway, no, the Titleist stuff was great. Um, and I'm using, a, I'm using what you buy off the rack. It's a 716. They're, well, most of the guys I play with, if you play with Adam Scott, it's a blade. But pretty much the last percentage I see when I play with guys, Adam Scott, um, you know, Hideki, they're the blades you see, but there's not a lot. There's a lot of guys trying to get a little bit of help somewhere. Yeah, um, definitely. Really, I see know, that true. on tours. You don't see right. blades. The blade is one of the least clubs you generally see as you walk up and down range. It's much more that middle range club, that like um, T100, if we're talking tight lists, you know, it's like the ping you know the middle one it's not the true true blade so i mean someone like adam scott is quite traditionally stuck on blades it's what he's played for years and what he loves isn't it because they even design their blade a little bit around what he wants as in because he's almost the only bugger using it <laughs> right. it helps it. you swing it like adam scott too <laughs> yeah <laughs> i wish so tony a, a question for you um on the different styles of irons i know you do a lot on your most wanted and your test. And I've tweeted this out publicly, so I'm not saying anything that I haven't said before, but I've, um, you know, been exposed to how Tony uh, and my golf spy does all of their testing. And uh, when I first saw what they were doing, I was extremely impressed at the protocol, what they're doing, how they're doing it. Uh, it's extremely sound. I should probably know this answer, but I don't. Have you ever looked at between your common testers, um, how they perform from group to group to see if, if, uh, you know, a 10 handicap is doing better with a super game improvement versus a, you know, a player's iron in the, across the different categories. Yeah, we, we haven't in a while um, just because again, you know, one is, is just a time thing, right? We've got to just kind of, it's, I mean, I think we wrapped up most wanted testing in, I think it might've been September, could have been October. So, I mean, it's, it's just a lot to get through. We've, we've looked at smaller samples in the past, you know, comparing to, Hey, if the same guy hits a game improvement iron, how does that compare to a blade? And, and we're looking at doing a larger test because it, it just keeps coming up, right? That guy can play a blade and it's no different or it's better and things like that. And then, you know, anecdotally, we have seen some things over the years where, you know, it's, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but I would say that you know, maybe not with a blade, but certainly when you get into kind of that, that small cavity back, the best shots that guys hit with those clubs are very often better than the best shots they hit with game improvement clubs. But then when you get at the other end, right, the, when you start looking at bad shots, the bad shots are way worse with those smaller clubs. And so, you know, there, there's some give and take there, but again, like we haven't looked at it super closely. It's something we're, we're likely going to do in the next year, but yeah, I mean, it's, and, and like anything else, right. There's whatever you find on average, you're always going to find an exception. Um, Tony, uh, just quickly. Uh, I'll just see uh, Callaway have gone back. Uh, sorry. Uh, Odyssey have gone back to their white hot in the insert, things like that. How often do you see, companies go through a technology and then go hey actually that was better back then let's go like how often do you test and go man i wish they go back to that it actually performs better i don't know if we we look at it that way i mean certainly we've seen some things that 
that have worked and some things that you know we we firmly believe just didn't work yeah. but that kind of thing i'm I, you know part of it part of part of it is probably some performance like hey this worked really well uh we tried some things and but you know this old thing still holds up and the other but the other piece of that is you know golfers love that and so if you you've got something that golfers love and you can sell them a new version of it or a slightly tuned version of of what they already have an affinity for i mean that's that's about as easy as it gets you don't have to you don't have to reprove the technology or any of that it's just like hey yeah i i had one of these 5 years ago i really liked it i you know i'm really excited to try a new one yeah i was very excited when the uh when that putter came back out uh, i had used that putter uh, the two ball putter um, and used it for uh, I had in maybe 17 years it was in the bag um, and the only reason I got rid of it is it got damaged it got dropped um, when I was in a house move um, and it hit something and it got a dent I was throwing it at oh, a no, tree no 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 <laughs> right, right. I haven't thrown house a club move. In, I haven't thrown a club in, hours yeah hours hours days anyway um, and I was yeah. super excited when it came back out because uh, you know I'm going to just for that affinity that I had for that. So I have one and it's sitting in the closet and I haven't used it, uh, but I I bought one. There you go. Yeah. I mean, companies do go round, don't they? I mean, you had Scotty Cameron release the checkered back Uh, Scotty again, maybe two before COVID hit, you've obviously got the two balls and you've got white hot coming back around. I mean, high toe wedges where every company makes now that was just a ping i2 was it or zing wedge i mean that's all that was um which obviously mickelson used to practice with and then it was callaway who kind of brought that back first wasn't it for him and then every other company done it and from cleveland to taylor made so i mean i do see golf clubs fashion is a word i use a lot in my reviews tony i mean fashion it, it definitely people the word tech in golf i sometimes think is the most kind of untruthful word used when it comes to some equipment because a lot of it is fashion they golf manufacturers are trying to pull on heartstrings of not only new golfers but golfers who have been playing for 10 years and they want to get that 10 year old putter out of lose bag and get a new one in there don't you think i mean i do see it as fashion to a certain extent yeah there's there's two forces at work inside any golf company right and you know at some point they may even be competing forces to a degree so you have an r&d department who is working within a very narrow box and that they were already pushing right up against the side of and they're they're trying to squeeze that much more out with every release right to get the tiniest little gain because realistically that that's what is available in a one-year cycle or even a two-year cycle you're not going to get a big jump you're you're going to get you know ping ping likes to talk about making a lot of things one to two percent better right yeah if you can make a lot of little things a little bit better you've got something but then on the other side you have the marketing department who's got a who's got a take that itty bitty bit and sell it like it is this much and so yeah i think you do sort of you know, R&D is not coming up with the paint colors and, and trying to come up yeah. with a story. They're just yeah. trying to squeeze out performance. And then it's an entire other department that's in charge of, of making that performance sound like it is the greatest innovation of, of the last decade, if not more. And that's, you know, you've just got to kind of repeat that cycle, but understand that, you know, behind the scenes, it's one thing and out front, it's, you know, it's it, it has to sound much, much grander than it is because everybody's trying to make it 
much, much grander than it is. And so if your story is, Hey, you know, we, we made it 1% better in three places. Yeah. <laughs> You've already lost the battle. Even, yeah, if, yeah. even if that statement is, is maybe even more true for you than it is for everybody. Else. I found the greatest ad in an old golf digest. It was from the late seventies, I believe uh, title is pro one hundreds. So I have it up right here and it's a, it's a full page open ad. And I've posted this before introducing Titleist pro one hundreds. If you don't have a good swing, don't buy them. Could you imagine Perfect. that kind of an ad today? <laughs> if you Perfect. stink, we don't want your money. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that is, that's kind of like the old Titleist mindset. It is, in a yeah. Nutshell, yeah, it's though, amazing. Right? I love it. Best ad yeah, ever. Absolutely. And it's interesting you say that with the two forces, Tony. I mean, I've sat in an R&D meeting um, with a company and they asked me for like ideas and I said one around game improvement clubs, not dissimilar to what you said earlier about like, like, can we just have chunkier clubs that don't have to look like they've got a massive horseshoe at the bottom and other ideas. And literally the designer just slammed the table was like, I've been saying this for ages, but in that meeting, it wasn't just R and D because the head of that meeting then had to coordinate with the marketing. And it was that person who made him sit back down basically. Cause when I went into the marketing meeting that I had to sit in, they were telling me about how they changed the font of the latest club from this to this, they have their two slides. And I sat there thinking, I can barely see the difference in those two. I can't believe this person's that excited about that font. So it's that constant battle, isn't it, between trying to help people. But at the end of the day, you've got to sell a product, didn't you? And if you've got loads of Tonys and My Golf Spies readers wanting to play blades, you can try and educate them or you can sell them blades, I guess, at the end of the day, can't you? Yeah, and there, there's a lot of that, right? It's like we're going Has to, to be. we're going to make bottom line at the end we're of the gonna day. Make we're going to make products that aren't necessarily the best performing for every segment because this is what the this is what the market wants whether it's an aesthetic whether it's a price point right yeah i mean golf balls are a great example there's there's no reason for a a 24 two-piece ball to exist it doesn't benefit anybody except the guy who doesn't want to spend more than 24 on a dozen yeah. golf balls and yeah. so you you have to have those products and those you know that that exists everywhere in the market and the other consideration here too is r&d guys have ideas but it's in in many cases it's the marketing department that that steers the ship from the perspective of, Hey, you know, this is what the market is telling us. This is, this is where we need to go. So def design the best product in this space, right? Yeah. This is what we need design the best you can rather than, Hey, you know, go nuts and whatever you come up with, we'll figure out how to sell it. It's, and a great example you know, of is... that is, is concept irons with tight lists. And obviously COVID's got in the way, but I, I don't, a concept irons even still a thing. Do you, do you remember the concept? Yeah, I mean, like, you can still buy them. Yeah, there was new ones, uh, new ones last year. Yeah. Okay. So concept irons is like the idea, like literally just a free reign. You can use as what materials you want, so on and so forth and design as what you want. You know, I, the, the demand for that iron is so minuscule. Obviously the price is extreme because you could, we can call it a concept iron and say that they're designing whatever they need to, or we could just think they're trying to hit that high market. That's a different debate. Um, but um, you give the, if you give an R and D person free reign, but I reckon if, if the R, if, if every other department went on holiday for two years and the R and D just ran it, I think you would see quite a few companies go in the wrong way, wouldn't you? I was going to say, yeah, no, like if I've made this we club, talk about looks like this, an elephant. Like if... It goes really straight. Yeah, yeah we would. 
and so you you need that balance and yeah. it's just you know hopefully the the one side doesn't doesn't carry it too far and, and tell too grand of a story but i mean that's that's just part of the deal right it's it's one thing to make it but if if you make the best widget in the world but you don't you don't have the marketing force to sell it you what have you really accomplished and i think there's you see that a lot with, with some of the smaller companies that make, you know, sometimes a little nichier, but really tremendous products, but without that, that marketing force behind them, like, nobody cares. Yeah, absolutely. Tony, how much time, I, I, have, a, I have a question that we got to talk about this. So how much time did you spend in your basement in 2021 cutting golf balls in half? Talk, talk to us about Ball Lab. Tell people what it was, what you did. Uh, Cause that was a massive undertaking and um, it is, very interesting to see all the things that you did. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, this was one of those things that I guess was sort of, if you follow the progression from the first ball test where, you know, I think, I think we went into that knowing what, what average golfers know about golf balls and not much more. And so, you know, sort of like a lot of them, they're going to be mostly the same and you're not going to find anything from a quality perspective that differentiates them. You're not going to see anything wild. And in that ball test, we had, if we had balls duck hook into the desert off a robot and just fly wildly offline. And we're like, what the hell? Like that's because, and that's where you go. All right. What, what went wrong here? And so you check the, because you get outputs from the launch monitor and the robots and you're like, okay, everything looks good. Let's go check the head. No, that's still locked in place. And then the next ball flies straight and you're like, well, the robot didn't come loose. There's something with that ball. And so we had enough of that happen where it was like, you know, kind of a, just a light bulb curiosity kind of thing. And then shortly after that test, Titleist was like, yeah, you guys should come out here. And so we, we went to Titleist and we saw some stuff, you know, a lot of, they do a lot of competitors testing, you know, everybody room. does, but right. And so like, you've been in that room and you're like, Whoa, it's Bob West. And so it is. And so that's like super eye-opening moment. Yeah. And so from us, it was like, all right, so we found some stuff or Titleist found some stuff and, and they told us this, but what would happen if we went out and, and tried to do a good bit of what they do on their own? Would we find similar things? Would we find stuff that's way off center and messed up? Would we find, would we find different balls <laughs> within the same box? Would we find wild ranges in, in quality from, from key metrics, weight, diameter, compression, right? Would we see the kind of variation that they tell us exists? And so I went to Adam and I said, hey, um, I've got a crazy idea. Let's let's spend a lot of money on on gauges and stuff, and and then go out and spend a lot more money on golf balls, and then, you know, I'll spend six months of my life in the basement measuring these things. <laughs> and so, you know, it was it was literally between talking to various manufacturers about hey, what we need, what's the best way to do this, what what is manageable, what makes sense, and then. Uh, talking with you know the guy that owns a patent on the compression gauge and and figuring out that piece of it and and how all of this needs to come together it was solidly six months of planning before the first piece of equipment showed up and then from there yeah like you mentioned it was it was a tear of you know just measuring because the idea was to build a a database of golf ball quality and to do that you 
you know, it, it needed to be comparative, right? You had to say, how does, how does X compare to Y to Z? And, and you can't do that until you, you get a decent enough sample size to kind of see what, what the trends are and what real averages are. So, you know, we started with like 36 models. We buy three dozen of each model. We spread out the orders so that we're, we're buying from different retailers at different times to get a good mix of everything. And then we, we run them through a process, which is, you know, we, we put them in an incubator so that everything stays at the, a constant temperature and humidity level when we're measuring. We take weight measurements. We take, I take a diameter measurement on four points on the golf ball. Um, and actually, I take all those measurements twice because, you know, you have to go back and validate and say, hey, yeah, this, what I got the first time, I can repeat that measurement. And if I can't repeat it and it's, it gets trickier with some balls, if there's rough spots on the covers, there's a lot of things that, that make that can create challenges, not always, but can. So every, every, every diameter measurement is checked twice. Um, and then we go through and we do compression on three spots of the ball. Um, and then at the last step is cutting them open. And when we cut them over, we're really, because, you know, we, we can't get to a level of precision because, you know, if you look at how manufacturer does it, right. They, they either laser cut that golf ball or they have a precise piece of machinery does it and plane it absolutely flat. And all of these things where it's like, I'm just looking at it going, Whoa, is that really fucked up? Um, and that's, and, and that is the process. And I've done that. I think, um, man, we're coming up on, I, I haven't checked. It's gotta be 2000 plus individual golf balls measured through that entire process. And so, you know, we, before we published the first report, we needed to, we front loaded that database. So I had data on again, like fully measured like 30 dozen so that we could start to see how the quality stacks up for a given model relative to the market as a whole. So yeah, I mean, long answer um, to your question, but yeah, hours upon hours upon hours. And, and, you know, it was initially, it was, you know, do regular my golf buy stuff for seven, eight hours and then go down there and spend two, three hours every day in the lab. And then, you know, six hours on the weekend sometimes. I hear your giant yeah, killer Dobermans barking in the background. Yeah. Tony has massive dogs that would, uh, you could never lock your door in your house and you'll, no one will ever rob you. Yeah, he's he's a pain in the ass. He's, he's in a mood. Today. So, what surprised <laughs> you the most in the ball lab? What was uh, what was most shocking? Uh, yeah, I, I it's hard to say shocking because I I try not to sensationalize anything in ball lab. I try and keep it as as flatline as possible. Um, but what I've what I've seen is, you know, almost every brand has a and and maybe it's not even fair to say brand. It might even be at the factory level, like where there is demonstrable weaknesses and strengths so you know great example i use foremost is one of the biggest producers of, of balls overseas right asian factory vice max fly encore wilson a lot of a lot of balls that guys play come out of there they struggle with weight so occasionally we'll get wild wild swings in weight consistency uh, i would say Shrixon struggles with roundness you know that's that's something we've observed where i tend to see more of those that are get a little dicey there and then you have you know as you would expect the way numbers work the way the math works right most brands are average <laughs> most everything kind of falls in that average range and then you look at titleist and yeah they do stand out with what we do for sure like the the top of our table is littered with titleist golf balls and it's i mean what what i say is a a bad titleist golf ball and i would say you know if i'm gonna if i'm gonna pick one i think 
Titleist Tor Speed, their first generation of injection molded cover, whatever they're doing there, it's not as good from a quality perspective as a Pro V1, Pro V1X, right? It's, it's a bad Titleist ball. It's still above average for the market as a whole. And so that's this kind of go, all right, you know what? These guys are number one and it, by every account they should be from what I've seen. So that's, that's kind of been like, well, that, that's interesting. Um, you know, little things like that. And occasionally, you know, cutting open the refurbs and I'm like, all right, there's four different cores in here. Yeah. <laughs> and this one is, this one is 130 compression. It's clearly not even a pro V1. So, I mean, you do get stuff like that. Um, and, and I guess, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, just, just seeing those patterns has been interesting for me for sure. And, and just seeing like, Hey, you know, and, and we'll keep testing. We'll see if this holds up. But when we're talking about consistency, everybody who makes a really soft golf ball will tell you, Hey, this is, this is harder, right? It's like trying to, to squeeze a marshmallow into, for lack of something else, like precisely within an eggshell, right. And get it to sit perfectly in the middle. It's, it's harder to do. And we see that like, softer balls tend to be less consistent across every manufacturer. So there's, there's stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been eye-opening and it's, it's still, it's still interesting, even though it's tedious, um, especially as new balls come out, right? Like, Hey, are, are we getting better here? Are we, are we holding? Has yeah. anything changed? Um, so it's, it's that kind of thing. Greg, the balls yeah, that you would play that you would get, did your menu, so you were Titleist? Part, yes. Did, the did they do time, yeah. anything special with the balls that you got? I don't mean that you got, you know, special balls that, that I can't buy, but did they run your stuff through any testing or were you just getting off Not to my knowledge, mate. It's yeah. You buy them off the rack. Not to my knowledge. I mean, they, they're putting three to four dozen in your locker every week for everyone. Um, I've never experienced anything. I've heard stories about, uh, you know, older players like Jumbo Ozaki not bringing his balls out to the actual golf course. He had special balls or something tucked away. Um, that he'd only pull out the trunk of his car, but I haven't seen anything at, at the PGA Tour level of, you know, anything that is tested that's way better. Um, I've heard Bryson does his stuff, which I'm sure you guys have spoken about and how he decides what he's going to use. Um, I'm going to take a look at this now. I had one of those. Really fascinating. I, mean, I had one of those devices. If you get, if you remember this, years ago where it was uh it would hold the golf ball and you'd create a salt water solution and you'd spin it and it would yeah, float yeah. and it would stop and you'd mark the top and you'd spin it again and yeah. if it came up the same spot you knew the ball was you know off center out of round whatever you wanted to call it and uh, then you would use that dot to try to line things up so things didn't curve and and you know i guess theoretically if you put the weight to towards one side if it, if it was um, off center with the with the weighting you could intentionally either make it curve one way more or fight a curve is that is that yeah you know yeah, I mean, it's so I, it's it's one of these things where you, you step back and go, yeah, it's, it's just all you're talking about is the center of gravity, right? right? And so it, it works the same way as a golf club. And so if you have, you know, typically what I say, hey, the if you want to call it off centeredness or a, a misalignment of weight, the closer to the outside of that golf ball, you know, because that means it's farther away from the true center of gravity, that's that's where it's going to have the bigger impact. And so, you know, when you look at I think probably the best example of a tiny or small core golf ball is like the Shrixon Z-Star XV, right? So, you know, really comparatively small core in a dual core design. So, you know, that, 
that's a really small amount of weight to begin with. It's probably in terms of the actual mass, um, the density, not much different or identical to the layer around it. So if you get a tiny little shift in that core, even mm -hmm. big enough to see, it's probably not going to have very much of an impact because you're moving a little bit of a weight, a very small distance, really close to the true center of gravity. Whereas if you have, you know, kind of this giant core in a, in a three piece ball and it's, it's shifted a little bit to the point where you can see that the mantle is way thinner on one side, even though that's not as eye popping as a, as a little core that's way off center, it's probably going to have a bigger impact. And these are kind of things that, you know, we're starting to try and find ways to test like, Hey, can we, can we get some balls that we know are off center and, and hit them on a robot and see what happens now, as you might imagine, there is not a lot of desire for any manufacturer to either find us the off-center balls Mass or produce off-center balls, them, yeah. send them to us. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're looking at that. That's the kind of thing we're looking at. So we're looking at, at different tests for, for some of the defects we find. But, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a wormhole for sure. So just a point there for you there, Lou. Sorry. Yeah, just a just old question, old question yeah. for you there, just about your dot and off-center balls. For every time that ball hurts you, it's got equally help you isn't it well it's ideally no right because no, no, you want to hit it, it true, way, but every time that ball no, hurts it, it you, it's got to equally help you full stop it just it could full right it, it really depends on the alignment right so yeah sometimes that's okay like if you have a ball that is it, it relies where, on how they line those two center gravities up full stop yeah, and which so is randomized like every it's... time i can show you a strike pattern from a great player and and they're going to be 10 millimeters from toe to heel my point is what I always say is, look, I, I want my best shots. This is a title song. I, your best shots should be rewarded. My, my take on that is I never want to worry that the ball had any, any contribution I to the quality of the I shot other than the, the actual performance attribute of that ball. But so, yeah, but, but, there's but a situation hurt, where you'll get an equal help. You just will do the maths. Luke. Yeah, I mean, you, you, just can, will. you can you you can slice unless ball, you're the most consistent ball golfer on the planet. Straight. You'd have to yeah, be the most consistent golfer where... on the planet, and then you would still be able to play it because you would get yeah. the same result every time. Think about what you're yeah, thinking. It's... You've got two center gravities, center gravity of the ball, center gravity of the face, of the head. If they don't align, you're going to get deviation of that ball. The world's best strikers are not aligning the center gravities of those two objects ever. And so you just hope that, that something in the design of a piece of that equipment isn't exacerbating a problem or well, even really like I, I yeah I don't I don't want to think that my golf ball is going to fix a slice sometimes but exacerbate a hook other times right it's like no this should be apart from the performance characteristics that are baked into that it should be should be an entirely neutral piece of the equipment yeah equation. I agree but my, my point more is as in for people who think that is something that they're worrying about so I, I know Lou putting his dot on his ball in his back in the day if I knew Lou back in then, I'd be thinking, Lou, that's the last thing you need to be worrying about, bro. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. That's not going to yeah. be making I, a I've, difference to your I ball. I have plenty of things uh, that and, I need to worry about. And right? that ball is helping you sometimes, which sometimes. you're ignoring. You're only thinking about the times it didn't yeah. help you, which you can't measure either. So uh, so here I have a question and a comment. Um, so for, and, and I'll, and I'll say them all together and then Tony, you can jump in on the question. So I, what do you think you would see in ball lab if you could get your hands on 
you know, brand new baladas from 1989, like how would those measure compared? And so my comment around that is it would be, it, it would be really interesting to see if they had to recreate the ballada golf ball today. Um, Paul Wood, who is in charge of engineering at Ping, incredibly smart guy. A while ago, there was an exchange on social media on Twitter, and it was around um, persimmon clubs. And I, I asked him the question, like, if you had to build a persimmon club today, could you make it perform better than they did you know, 40 years ago? And he said, with everything we've learned, 100%, we would be able to make a persimmon club that performs significantly better than they did back then. Um, I'm curious if they would be able to do that with, with Bellatas. Um, but you know, kind of back to my question, like how, and I know you're just speculating, you have no idea. How bad do you think Bellatas would have been if you put them through Ball Lab? Yeah, I would, I would expect pretty bad. I mean, we know, <laughs> like, you know, I don't know how many people know this, but when, when Titleist was offering the, the, the Tour 90 and the Tour 100, or the professional, um, there, it, neither one of those was spec'd. Like, it was a range, and they rolled off the line, and they compression tested it, and if it was closer to a 90, it was a 90, <laughs> if it was closer to a 100, it was a 100. And that's, I mean, that, that's how it was done. And so I think, you know, um, I would expect to see similar deviations in weight and diameter and, and things like that. Um, but I, I do think, yeah, if you said, hey, we have to go back and we have to, if we said, hey, we, you have to, all balls have to be balada. I think you could probably make a better balada now than you could back then for sure. You have different materials. You'd have, you'd have the knowledge gained from, from solid, you know, a few generations of solid core balls now that you could retrofit and try and bake into that. But yeah. To, yeah. I mean, knowledge advances um, in the uh, USGA. The game is yeah, easier now. <laughs> in the USGA yeah. distance insight report, I forget which report it, it was. It was one of the sub reports, but they, and this is back going into the seventies and eighties, they attributed about a 15 yard increase in distance to the dimple pattern on the golf ball and what they learned through the seventies and early eighties. And think of what that meant back then, how far they were hitting it and adding 15 yards. Uh, and it was really just through, through dimple design. Um, it was interesting to read that part. So yeah, they, they are obviously a lot smarter now and, and, if they had to go and recreate old equipment, I'm sure it would be much better than it used to be. Oh, absolutely. Well, if you go back to a point of time, right, you're going to see every ball, regardless of manufacturer, have that, that same dimple pattern, that original Addy dimple pattern. And so they went from that to sort of modern engineering of dimple patterns to, to the point now where you're looking at, Hey, you know, I've got a ball with this launch of, I should say flight and spin characteristic, which of these dimple patterns best works with that ball and so you're you're really mixing and matching to to get the most optimal flight that you can uh and and you mentioned right where's the opportunity for advancement it's not sexy but um as, as much as we think that golf ball design is way evolved mm -hmm. the aerodynamic piece is still to a degree barely understood you know they've they've thrown supercomputers at it and haven't come close to mapping the full rotation of a golf ball, let alone the full flight. So, you know, there, there's, there's still a blind spot to that degree and you know, learning with every iteration, but you know, there, there's an opportunity for better performance, but at the same time, right. You have all these, these reg rules and regulations. So you know, you're, you're still going to be capped on what you can do, even if your, your knowledge advances significantly. Cool. 
There you go. I've got two last. Well, I've got two questions. When you can answer one of them to finish, Tony. If everyone's everyone's out, everyone's done with their questions. Yeah, Greg's I'll out. Lou's yeah. good. Um, you can choose which one you answer, Tony, because I don't want to just drop you in. So one of the questions is, what are you looking forward to most in 2022? So that could be equipment-wise, my goal spy-wise, but work-related-wise. Or the other question you could choose to answer, I don't mind which one you go for, companies to work with. You work with companies behind the scenes. Do you find some of them easier, harder? Do you find some of them <laughs> Don't touch that one, Tony. Or not? <laughs> you choose. Um, I'm happy for you to choose oh, well, whichever one I think you want I get, I think I could easily just the second one is like, yes, <laughs> like they are not all the same to work with. Some are more difficult and everyone poses a, a unique challenge to a degree. But cycling back in terms of what I'm most looking forward to, I'll give you a teaser. Cool. Um, I, I, I don't think it'll be probably until Q2, but we are going to launch a new website. It's going right. to be the, the biggest overhaul probably in my golf spy history. Cool. Um, so that's something I'm looking forward to in terms of equipment. Haven't seen it. I expect I'll get a, a look at it probably even by the end of this week. But the um, the new TaylorMade driver, yeah. the the chatter on that um, is uh, it's going to be interesting. Okay, that's I thought I thought for sure you you were going to say um, you're looking forward the most to some trees being cut down on your course, and just for a little back context there, Tony, <laughs> the golf course that Tony plays on. There's like 20 yards between tree canopies and these trees are 800 feet tall. And uh, I've seen pictures. He's shown me stuff. It's crazy how many trees are on there. And I know that are, are they still lead, looking at chopping some of them down. Is that still in the works? So, yeah. So there we're actually, there's going to be a logging company yes. that comes in and there's going to be, I mean, they're talking like literally thousands upon thousands of trees will come down. They're going to open up areas between holes that have never been open, or at least, you know, not, not since the course was built in, you know, uh, 1920 right. or 1921. So McGregor links. And um, yeah. <laughs> so the, 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 the hole that we talked about specifically, Lou, number 15, which you, you know, your response to me when I showed you the picture is what dog hole is this? And <laughs> I've, actually, I've actually suggested that you know, we have T markers on most holes that have the name of the hole. I'm like, this one actually should be called dog. I think that's, <laughs> that's probably not, not unfair. It's like, it's a, it's a 550 it's yard par five that takes driver out of hands because the, the opening out. where you land is like this big. Um, but I, so they're starting to paint trees like this one's gone. to come down. Right, yeah, yeah. And so that entire corner on that 15th hole that, that takes it from being um, that, that would change it from being, you can't hit driver to hitting driver is a risk, which I think is fair, right? That that's reasonable. Risk is reasonable. Absolutely not being able to do it. Not fair. That entire point of trees is, has got orange X's and they're becoming down. So you know, I think it's probably going to take two to three years for them to actually gut everything they want to gut, but it, it's potentially going to nice. be. Uh, okay, well, so you're, you know, it's, you're, it's just a little you're looking forward to cutting open more balls and losing less balls than yes. in 2020. Well, yes. I mean, we still have still have white stakes on all 18 holes, Mark. So there's no. What does that mean? White stakes no, as in out of bounds, you mean? OB on every hole. There what? is no relief. Eight, all 18 holes have it. Yeah, it, not inside, but somewhere on every hole because they, yeah, I mean, it just the way it wanders around. There's, there's no, there's not I, a single hole that is entirely contained. 
Lou, and so yeah. Oh, I I OB would shoot 157 at that. Lou, course. don't ever go there, bro. Oh, I'm not. Just I'm not do going not there. Go there. So, Can Tony, we put I'm going to Lou's face behind the pro shop. Do a not little, let little, Lou little pro tip. A pro tip. Um, In the inside of the course, orange cans of spray paint at Home Depot are 4.99. Um, I'd go get a few. I would be out there. I, know, I would. I would mark a thousand trees myself. Just. You know what? This one, I don't like. Yeah, that, that one. one's gone. Yeah. I'd put it in yeah. my bag. I'd think of it like just another piece of equipment. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You there could test go, which orange spray is best. <laughs> <laughs> which, which one effectively which got the tree cut down? Highest, highest resolution got the tree cut down. <laughs> absolutely. There we go. Brilliant. Thanks for your time, yeah. Tony. As always, a pleasure to speak to you. and look forward to what my golf spy have to bring in 2022. If you don't already, check out their website and definitely look at the ball lab stuff if you want comprehensive ideas of ball testing they certainly have that down to a t uh greg thanks for your time we'll look forward to seeing you next week new guest presenter uh, always a pleasure and uh, thanks for everyone listening speak to you all in the next podcast and as always leave reviews leave some stars and thanks for listening <laughs>